Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, ClinCheck, the ultimate tool in your Invisalign arsenal, with Dr. Maz Moshiri. You'll earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you'll receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of this presentation. Additionally, CE hours will be automatically added to your Invisalign doctor site account. Please allow two to four weeks for CE hours to appear. Please note that you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar, you will have the opportunity to ask questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance if we are unable to answer everyone's questions, since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to address any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the Education tab of your Invisalign doctor site, where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Maz Moshiri. Dr. Moshiri attended Emory University to receive his BS degree in Neurobehavioral Biology. He then went on to obtain his doctorate, Master's in Oral Biology, and Certificate of Advanced Training in Orthodontics from the University of Louisville. Upon graduation from dental school, Dr. Moshiri graduated in the top of his class and was honored with the American Association of Orthodontist Student Awards, two International College of Dentists Awards for both leadership and for professionalism, the Oral Biology Research Award, the Omicron Kappa Delta Award for Outstanding Graduating Senior, and honorary induction into the prestigious Academic Society of Omicron Kappa. So without further ado, I'll turn the floor over to Dr. Moshiri. Dr. Moshiri, you now have the floor, and thank you so much for doing this presentation this morning. Thank you, Amy. It's my pleasure, and uh, thank you to those who are listening for being with us uh, and taking time out of your busy schedule. And with that, we'll get started on the presentation here. Uh, just as a disclaimer, the statements, views, and opinions expressed in this program are really those of my own, and Align Technology may not endorse such statements, views, or opinions. Ultimately, the attendees are responsible for legal and regulatory compliance of any marketing and referral programs. Just a little bit about myself. I uh, am very blessed and honored to work with my best friend and father, who has been at Orthodox for 30 years. Our practice is in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, really, he gave me a lot of confidence coming out of residency five years ago to dive into Invisalign and to get to where we're at today in the practice in terms of uh, really recommending Invisalign as a go-to appliance for many types of malocclusions. We are elite providers of Invisalign, and I'm currently also teaching Invisalign to the residents at SLU, St. Louis University, uh, twice a month. So we're all on this call to obviously understand how to better perform with the Invisalign appliance clinically. And there's really several variables to allow this to happen for us. Mainly, in any uh, orthodontic appliance you use, the most important thing, obviously, is diagnosis. And the one thing I'm really going to focus on today is two-size discrepancy. I have it abbreviated here as TSD, uh, as this information is very important to help us to detail any occlusion, as most of anything we do with Invisalign needs to be up front. Once those aligners are made, you have what you have in front of you, and you cannot really go back without having to take a refinement or mid-course correction to make more aligners. And of course, set up with the ClinCheck. We have to have thorough evaluation of the ClinCheck and understanding of the plausibility and our limitations of the movements occurring. And this really involves being a constant student 
If I ever do a refinement, if I have a mid-course correction, I generally have on the computer the photos of the patient in the current situation, and I am always reflecting back and comparing what happened and what did not happen, and I'm learning from that experience on a daily basis. Proper technique, how are you performing your IPR, are you controlling your anchorage, as this ultimately is going to affect the clinical result. Obviously, the patient is very important. Do you have a patient that's going to wear the aligners, because ultimately, if they're not wearing them, it's not going to work. And of course, your team. Uh, this is extremely important. Uh, I have a highly trained team, uh, and I'm very blessed to be with them. They do a great job adding attachments for me, because again, if the attachments aren't in the proper position from the beginning of treatment, that's going to affect your clinical result. Uh, they are always encouraging my patients to make sure they're wearing their aligners. They know what to check for when the patients come in to make this an efficient process within the practice. This is a diagram I uh, initially got the idea off of from Dr. Brandt, who's a mentor for me, and I encourage anyone on this call, if you want to learn more about Invisalign, to look at his ATE call as well, Dr. Douglas Brandt. And essentially, this is a flow diagram of my thought process whenever I'm evaluating a ClinCheck. And we're going to go through these line items one by one through the presentation. So the most important uh, here from the get-go is the initial bite set. As you can imagine, uh, when we're going through, and I'm going to get to this in a moment, if your bite is not set correctly, it can affect the whole treatment outcome. And again, with ClinCheck, it takes me about four to six communications to really get this set up properly. It's not just accepting what comes back from Align. Align does a great job with innovations and really giving us this, this technology to use in our practices. But ultimately, it's the responsibility of the doctor to make sure that everything is set up properly. Your, your technician will not add attachments for you for certain movements that you as a doctor need to know will not occur if those are not present. So let's get back to the bite set here. And if we look at our records, one of the most important things that we do in terms of information that we can provide to Invisalign is great photos. This is what they use to basically set up your bite. And Invisalign does not use a wax bite or a PVS bite. They generally will primarily use your photos to set up the occlusion. And as you can imagine, if you have a patient such as this that has really an unstable occlusion with some interferences, you can see on the maxillary and medullary occlusal photos, I have articulation markings. And those centric contacts provide valuable information for a line to then set the case up for you. So for example, this was a general dentist that came to me to have uh, treatment with Invisalign. And this was his initial setup, and we had gotten him to a refinement. And as we can see from the upper and lower, he leveled the line very nicely, but I wanted to detail his occlusion still posteriorly. So when I submit this for refinement and we get the ClinCheck back, I noticed here, and you have to look carefully, that the midline was slightly off versus what we saw in the clinical photo. So I'm sitting here and I'm looking at that and I'm wondering why, what's going on? So then when I look at my articulation markings, I clearly have an articulation marking on the distal lingual cusp of both lower second molars. But if we go to the ClinCheck and turn it around, I can see I'm articulating on the distal lingual cusp here, but I'm cusp fossa on the right side. So the bite was not set accurately. So those articulation markings helped me to really diagnose what was going on there. And when I communicated with the line, that is the corrected version. And now we are seating where we need to be on the right and left sides. And now the midlines match. 
So what would have happened if I did not catch that is the question. And really, I could have expected at the end of treatment that I would have had a midline shift, possibly an arch asymmetry and lack of coordination, and probably unnecessary IPR that would have been used to detail the occlusion from that spot. If I was to give a rough guess, I would say I probably have an inaccurate bite set in one out of about 25 patients. So I see this occurring here and there, and it's something you definitely need to pay attention to. Our panoramic x-ray, of course, is important. You want to evaluate root parallelism and address any periodontal issues that may be aided with the orthodontic treatment. It's also an initial screening tool for TMD, of course, to look at the symmetry of the condyles. And then we have our supplementary x-ray. I wouldn't imagine to treat a patient such as this, of what you're seeing in the ClinCheck, without evaluating supplementary numbers for incisor angulations, for IMPA, and so forth. And that takes us to our next line item here, which is understanding the tooth size discrepancy. We as trained orthodontists and dentists have very particular eyes, but even our highly trained eyes can have tricks played on them daily. So for example, most observers, when looking at this situation here and ask which circle is bigger, may say that the orange circle on the right is bigger. But in fact, when we look at this, they're the exact same size. And do we not confront the situation as we move from patient to patient on a daily basis, as we're trying to figure out how to detail their various occlusions when they all have inherently different sizes of teeth? Wouldn't more information be helpful? So again, you have a patient that comes in such as this, and we're trying to predict how do we get from here to here without either doing IPR or extracting teeth. Obviously, this patient's uh, has, has an inherent two-sided discrepancy, and that's really the reason for the malocclusion. We have to know what that number is. How much discrepancy do they truly have? So we have the concept of the Bolton discrepancy, and this states that a proper balance should exist between the medial distal size of the maxillary and mandibular arches to ensure proper interdigitation, overjet, and overbite at the completion of orthodontic treatment. And this really can be solved for us with an equation, and we're going to get to that in one moment. In terms of two-size discrepancy, I want us to think about, though, what happens if we do not understand this number, if we just try to address the malocclusion without knowing this. When we have a patient in braces, we obviously do this on the fly. So if I have a patient that comes in and they're socked in class one occlusion, but I'm noticing that they're very tight anteriorly, I'm going to do IPR on the lower incisors to upright the lower incisors and give them more overjet. I'm able to do that with braces. But with Invisalign, you're not able to do that. You really need to understand what this discrepancy is up front. Otherwise, if you don't diagnose it and you're proceeding through treatment and you're caught with those heavy centric contacts again anteriorly, you're probably going to get disclusion of the posterior bite, and that's not a good situation to be in. So again, we would have a less than ideal occlusion if we don't diagnose this possibly compromised aesthetics, for example, in that patient below the laterals are too small. And as I mentioned already, you could possibly get a posterior open bite. So the Bolton equation is this. You basically have an overall ratio, which is from the mesial of the, uh, mesial of the molars to molar on the other side, the sum of the widths of the teeth, or you have an anterior ratio, which is the sum of the widths of the fixed anterior teeth. The ratios here have numbers associated with them as percentages. 
and then we're going to plug those in for you right there so you can see as a visual what they are. So for example, let's say we have a patient that comes in and we measure the mesial distal width of the six mandibular anterior teeth and we figure out that's 41.5 millimeters. We do the same thing on the maxillary arch and we figure out that that width is 48 millimeters. And then we plug this number here, the, both these numbers, into this equation. And when we do that, we see that the percentage is actually 86.45. Well, that number is greater than 77.2. So we know that there is a mandibular excess, and we know that from the percentage. But really, how is that helping us? We just have the percentage. We know in general there's a mandibular excess, but wouldn't it be helpful to know exactly how much? So when we plug this in, in terms of numbers, this is really an algebraic equation. So we can set the patient's mouth to equal the ideal ratio given what they already have in the maxillary teeth. So we're just solving for x. So when we solve for x, we understand that x equals 37.05, which is what the mandibular teeth should equal given the width of the patient's maxillary teeth. So now we can actually subtract, though, these two numbers, what the patient has and what it should be. And now we see that we have 4.45 millimeters of mandibular excess. That is how much enamel would need to be removed in order to make these teeth interdigitate properly. Now, is that not a, a better situation to actually know that number to dictate your IPR on the ClinCheck versus having the technician do it to just avoid collisions? Because again, it's all about having a detailed occlusion when we finish and a predictable result. And this is important to get there. Now, let's say that the patient has a deep bite though, and you don't want to perform IPR on them. Because if you perform IPR on a deep bite patient, it's going to prevent you from really opening up their bite. Well, we can solve for y. We can solve for what the maxillary discrepancy would be. So again, solve for the opposite variable, plug it into the equation, and we see that we have 5.5 millimeters of maxillary deficiency. Notice, please, that this number is greater than the maxillary, or pardon me, mandibular excess. The maxillary deficiency, the number is greater than the mandibular excess, which makes sense because all the top teeth fit over the bottom. But now if I have a deep bite patient, I know I have to open up, for example, that amount of space around their small laterals in order to make their teeth fit together properly and have proper interdigitation anteriorly. So again, this information is vital to us. So let's move forward and understand how to apply this to size discrepancy and whether or not to use space or IPR. So how do you address this? I kind of touched on this already, depth of bite. If I have a patient with a deep bite, I know that when I procline incisors, the bite naturally opens. So if I have a two-sided discrepancy, I may choose to open up space around the laterals instead of doing significant IPR to address crowding. But what if the patient has recession, if they have some periodontal recession occurring? Do I want to procline those incisors, or am I more inclined to do IPR to try to maintain the initial inclination of them? Anterior guidance, where are they occluding on their anterior teeth? Are they hitting on the facial of their incisors versus the incisal edge? Would proclining them help that? And those are all obviously based on the individual variations of your patients. Aesthetics, are the laterals small? Would they look better if they were built up for cosmetic reasons? Lip support, again, proclining or bringing them back, how would that affect the profile? And lastly, really to detail 
the occlusion. And let's talk about this one in particular here. So we have a teenage boy that comes into the practice, and uh, he has a narrow maxilla with upper and lower crowding. I'm not going to dive into this case too much because I really just want to point out one thing here. When the occlusion came back, when the clincheck came back from Invisalign initially, we can see that the arches were level aligned very nicely. But in particular here, when we get to the end of this clincheck, I want you to notice that the occlusion is finishing class two. So I'm going to take this out to that point for you here. And as we can see in the premolar segment, we are finishing here class two. Clearly in my instructions to align, I always indicate that I want the occlusion to finish class one, but they weren't able to do that here. And the question is why? All the spaces on the upper are closed, all the spaces on the lower are closed. So there's clearly a two size discrepancy here. Lo and behold, uh, when I had seen this case, I actually had gone to the summit in uh, Las Vegas a couple of years ago and heard Dr. Brandt give a talk about suicide discrepancy, and then the light bulb went off for me with this case that that's exactly what's going on. So I had done the suicide discrepancy analysis and realized that we needed to open space around the laterals. And by doing that, that allowed me to use class two elastics to then settle the buccal occlusion to full class one. So here's some tips. If you have a class two malocclusion, how can you use that two size discrepancy number to your advantage? Let's take some scenarios. So the case I just presented, if you have a mandibular excess or maxillary deficiency, you can dislodge the buccal segment to full class one and then build up the upper laterals if needed. Or let's say that the patient had a good amount of overbite or maybe even was a little bit of an open bite tendency. You could instead use IPR on the lower to upright the incisors and mesialize the lower buccal segment to eliminate heavy anterior interferences and also help to classify your buccal occlusion. When doing this, however, one thing I would pay attention to, let's say the patient had a good overbite or maybe even deeper, you want to make sure to overtreat the bite opening at the end because when you do IPR on the lower, the incisors naturally will want to extrude and upright. So we have to be careful with that movement. Let's talk about maxillary excess. So what happens if your molars are class one, but your buccal segments anteriorly are still class two and you have increased overjet? If you have maxillary excess, then you can do IPR and you can distalize your buccal segment, get classified, and then reduce your overjet. But again, when retracting, teeth will want to extrude and maybe even uh, uh, dump a little bit too much. So you need to be careful with your lingual root torque and maybe even over-engineer it in your clincheck so you have excess lingual root torque when retracting the two to two segment. Next, when thinking through the clincheck, once we've addressed any two size discrepancy, we need to see do we need to add or change any attachments which have been recommended by a line or triggered by the software. So for example, here's a fully treated case. Uh, this patient has class one malocclusion with mouth crowding of the lower and spacing of the upper, and that was really her chief complaint was her spacing. She has moderate overbite and minimal overjet, and we have calculated that she has a two-size discrepancy of 1.2 millimeters on the mandibular in terms of an excess. Her step shows that she has class one skeletal relationships and has uh, fairly acceptable incisal inclinations on the upper and lower. 
And so what our treatment goals were were to alleviate the lower crowding and mandibular tooth pass excess IPR to create overjet in order to allow us to close the upper spacing. And this is really a good teaching case because several things occurred here that when reflecting on, one didn't make sense to me, but two I had also learned a lot from. So this is the patient's ClinCheck. And as we're noting here, we're getting closing of the diastema and we're getting lingual root torque of the upper two to two during closure. We're also getting significant lower anterior intrusion to open the bite. And as you can see, there is IPR being performed as well. If you're wondering what these blue lines are, that's essentially signifying it's an illustration that I had hooks for class three elastics on this patient, and I'm going to get into why I did that. And this is this patient's finished result. So she was ecstatic. She was thrilled. Uh, but when I'm looking at this, I personally would have liked to have had a little bit more bite opening, up, and I'm going to get into maybe why that did not occur. Another thing that baffled me here was that when I look back on this ClinCheck again, I'm sure all of us have had problems using Invisalign on anterior teeth and maybe not having the tooth tracked properly in the aligner, especially when there's not an attachment on the tooth. Because let's take another case, for example, with almost the exact same malocclusion. This is a completely different patient. And as we're seeing here, this is where the patient started, and this is the patient at stage 24. If you generally will try to close the diastema without attachments on the teeth, what happens is that the crowns will tip mesially. You're not getting translation of the roots, and you'll end up with a nice black triangle here and then having to go into refinement to try to upright the roots over the crowns. So why did it work on the previous patient and not on this one? Well, for this particular patient, what was going on, we had a lot of upper lingual root torque during the closure of the space. And if you go back and read some of Larry Andrews' articles on his six keys of occlusion, he states that for every four degrees of lingual root torque, you get one degree of mesial root tip. So even though I did not have an attachment on here, the amount of torque I was getting was helping the root to come mesial to counteract the crown also tipping mesially as well. So long and short of it, I got lucky. But for most patients, if you're ever closing a diastema, you need to have an attachment on that tooth. It's very important. Otherwise, you're tipping up the crowns towards each other. But let's discuss further what I had mentioned also previously. If we look here, this is the predicted finish of this patient in terms of her overbite. And if we look at where she actually finished clinically, it's deeper than that. The reason being she had IPR on the lower. And when we did IPR and close that space, again, remember the teeth want to extrude. It's fighting our bite opening. So luckily, I had class three elastics planned on her, and this is really something I've been doing for many years, is that when I have a patient that's class one, or even class three, obviously, and I'm trying to finish their occlusion, I have class three elastics planned just in case. Because generally, I find with Invisalign, if I'm opening up a bite, or adding root torque, lingual root torque, that I'm not getting as much clinically as what is predicted in the ClinCheck. So you want to have a backup plan to allow you to increase your overjet anteriorly, because if you have a heavy centric stop, that again is going to disclude you posteriorly 
and lead to issues in terms of the occlusion. And this gets us to our next point, which is the interincisal angle and centric contact evaluation and also anchorage considerations. So just to give you an example, I try to finish all of my clean checks with zero centric contacts if they are a good overbite or a deep overbite. Obviously with open bites, I'm not trying to do that when closing open bite. But if they have good, average, or moderate or deep overbites, I'm still finishing with zero centric contacts because more times than not clinically, you're not going to get this. You're going to get centric contacts anteriorly. You need to over-engineer your ClinCheck. So when looking at this, in terms of diastemas, consider over-treating the following. Your anterior overjet, and you can do that by increasing upper lingual root torque, adding a little bit more lower IPR indicated or possible class 3 elastics, or you can increase the bite opening by doing upper and lower intrusion as needed. This is the patient's CEPH post-treatment, showing that we again uprighted the incisors on the lower to create overjet, and then we also close the space on the upper, which slightly decreased the uh, upper incisor inclination as well. And that's the before and after again. So let's go to a similar, similar case with a little bit of a different issue though. This was a teenage patient that came in, and she also has a tooth size discrepancy upon presentation. Again, class one occlusion with moderate overbite and minimal overjet, and her mandibular excess was three millimeters. And this is due to retain lower second primary molars and also small upper laterals. From her CEPH, we can see she has average uh, mandibular plane angle and sizal inclinations, and she again is class one skeletal. The goal for her with treatment was to alleviate her lower crowding and upper spacing by reshaping the lower second primary molar so that it was about the size of what a normal second premolar would be. And we also wanted to address the maxillary deficiency by correcting the size of the laterals with future buildup. So we were basically leaving space and easy on distal for her dentist to take care of that at the end of treatment. And this is her clean check. So please notice this time we do have attachments indeed on the centrals to help with closure and root parallelism at the end of treatment and to prevent tipping of the crowns. Instead, we have a significant amount of IPR on the bottom, two millimeters per side, to help address that two side discrepancy and to make that second primary molar the size of a lower second adult premolar. Something to note here. If you plan on doing this, I'm obviously not performing any IPR on the first premolar or the permanent first molar. I'm intending for that IPR to solely be on that primary molar. Invisalign cannot predict that. The software does not allow you to do that, meaning they split the IPR between the two adjacent teeth. So if I'm doing this, I know that inherently I'm going to have some form of a discrepancy because the software is not planning for me to do that. So I was planning for a refinement in this patient. In hindsight, I maybe could have done this before my impression, having now known that. But again, if you want to do it during, just plan that you'll need a refinement, and that's not a big deal. You're just planning ahead for it. Something to point out, though, again, is that knowing what I know, I try to overestimate the amount of intrusion I would have needed in this patient to avoid heavy anterior sensory contacts. And you can see this is the last stage 
of the clincheck. And this is her progressing through, and here's her stage of refinement. So when we compare now the two and take a look, that is what is predicted from my first clincheck, and this is the first stage of refinement. And we can see again clearly that she is deeper clinically than what was predicted. And please remember again why. She had significant IPR on the lower, and the lower incisors came back as a result of closing that space. So this was to be expected. So in a refinement, we're increasing the upper lingual root torque, further intruding the lower incisors. Again, I have class three elastics to help me avoid heavy anterior centric contacts. And we get to her finish here, and she was thrilled. We had the uh, occlusion built up on the lower second primary molar, and also she had both of her laterals built up as well. But I can rest assured now that since I've addressed the tooth size discrepancy for this patient, that she now has a stable functional occlusion and she should not be cracking space or having issues of lower crowding later on in life. Obviously, she's still wearing a retainer, but this is not an unstable occlusion for her versus me just trying to close all the space from the get-go on the upper. Again, these are both cases summarized. Both previous examples have significant lower IPR. And retraction, when closing that space, will lead to extrusion and will hinder bite opening. So we need to over-treat the intrusion of these patients. This is a case from a very good friend of mine and a great clinician by the name of Dr. Dan German in Dayton. And he and I will discuss cases back and forth a lot. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he sent me this case via email because he thought it was interesting. And, and this basically exemplifies, again, what we've already touched on. This was a teenage patient that when we went through treatment here with them, we can see at the finish here that he has a posterior bite opening. And the question is why? At this point, what Dr. German decided to do was that the lower arch is really leveled the line very nicely and was finished, and hence the presence of the lower 3-3 three three lingual retainer. But obviously, he wasn't going to let the patient stay into this position. So he did a refinement on the upper arch to increase the upper lingual root torque. And as we see, he closed down very nicely. So lingual root torque and anterior intrusion are definitely two movements that we want to over-treat in the ClinCheck design. And we need to ask ourselves, really, what's the worst thing that can happen? So let's say that you over-treat this in your ClinCheck and you have an open bite in the ClinCheck is essentially what you're looking for. You have increased overjet and you have an open bite. Well, let's say you have 25 aligners total. If your patient gets to aligner 20 and they have perfect overbite and overjet, do you need to give them the other five aligners? The answer is no, you're done. But what happens if you didn't plan for that and you got through the 25 and I have posterior bite opening because of heavy anterior centric contacts? What's a better situation to be in? So having said that, is there a more predictable way to open bites and to try to avoid all this over-engineering? And the answer is yes, but it really depends on your patient. So this is my sister-in-law, and she had came in because she wasn't pleased with the appearance of her smile. When we look carefully at her case, we can see she has a class 1 malocclusion with mild crowding of the upper and lower, uh, and she has moderate overbite and minimal overjet. Her upper midline was off to the right towards the smaller lateral incisor, and her lower midline was to the left by one millimeter as well. 
in terms of doing her diagnostic workup, we had found out that she had a 2.8 millimeter mandibular excess, which again also equates to a maxillary deficiency. Given though that she did present with a deep bite, we wanted to help her to open her bite up as well. When I looked at her cef and evaluating everything, I figured that we could procline her incisors so she could tolerate that. So we wanted to use that to our advantage because when you procline teeth, the bite naturally opens. So as we go through a quincheck here, you can see that we're intruding upper and lower teeth, but we're doing it during proclination. So as the teeth are going labially, we're seeing that the teeth are also being intruded. And those two movements will really go hand in hand. They complement each other. And this is just another view of the same thing. As we are proclining, we are seeing that the bite is opening. So I'll let that play through one more time so we can see that. As we are proclining, we have the bite opening. You can see we're opening up space, mesial and distal to the upper lateral incisors, so we can have them built up for future restoration. And this is her right now uh, at progress. We're waiting for her restorations to be done, but as you can see, the bite opened up very nicely. And this is her pan showing before and after. We can see that the curvus fee here is leveled out nicely in the pano. And again, before and after photos. So this is a much more predictable way to open bites if your patient can tolerate it. This is obviously based off the incisor inclinations in the CEF, uh, periodontal condition of the tissues, and clearly can they tolerate that proclination. So let's look at another example of this. This patient presented to the office. Obviously, he uh, had an avol's tooth. He unfortunately had gotten a softball to the face. And then looking at him, we can see that he has a soft tissue class three, narrow maxilla, and he's super class one in his molars, uh, and class one in the cuspid. He has minimal overjet and overbite, and he has poor periodontal condition and lower with poor hygiene as well. Diagnostically, we found out that he has a mandibular tooth size excess of 3.2 millimeters, which is really fairly significant. So the issue here was you can see he has an exaggerated lower curve of speed. And to level that in order to allow the dentist to eventually do a good restoration, I did not want those teeth to recline because he has poor, uh, he had a poor periodontal condition. So we needed to do IPR on him. But there's a question here in terms of how do we stage this though so it doesn't fight our bite opening as we've already previously discussed, and we're going to get into that. Another issue here, obviously, was that uh, the upper right, too, is clearly in the way of where number eight needs to be restored in terms of the implant. So does Invisalign perform root movement? And we're going to show you how to set up for that. This is his Ceph, again, showing uh, his incisal inclinations here that he was a subclinical class three, had a width value of negative three. Uh, he had average angulation of his upper and lower incisors, and I was really trying to wish to keep those incisor inclinations where they were through treatment. So our goals were to detail the upper arch form and upright the root of tooth number seven and to maintain the inclination of the lower incisors, especially when leveling the curve of speed. And this is really the goal here. We have three things that uh, we need to talk about here on this, on this particular view. Let's focus on the lower arch first. So for one, 
as the teeth are proclining, again, I am intruding. So I'm asking for intrusion during proclination. And you might be asking yourself, I thought you didn't want to procline the teeth because of the poor periodontal condition. And the answer is yes, I do not. But in order to do my IPR in the right area, I had to procline these teeth first. And then I'm retracting them and closing space once the IPR is performed. But I'm not doing that until the bite has been opened. So if you have any bite opening, make sure it's during proclination. If you have a lot of crowding and need to do your IPR, your bite will open much more predictably. And then during your retraction of space, you can have the teeth stay at the same level and make sure they do not extrude. Another thing to point out here are the attachments being used on the upper. Please notice that on the upper right lateral here, I have a very large vertical rectangular attachment. There are no G4 attachments for laterals. They exist for canines and central incisors. And those G4 attachments, what I'm specifically referring to, are the root movement attachments. So if I did not add this, nothing would have been added for this lateral. And it may have happened predictably, but why? The only reason why I'm saying that is that he's missing this tooth. So there's plenty of plastic hugging that mesial surface here, which would have added surface area to push the root to where it needed to be. But assuming that central was there, there's no way that that movement would happen without an attachment on it. So please, whenever you have a root movement, make sure there is a long vertical attachment on that tooth, unless nowadays G4 attachment has been triggered, but just keep an eye out for it. Another thing to point out here are that the central incisor and lateral incisor here, the upper left one and two, are rotating and extruding. And again, there was no attachment triggered for those teeth. As we know, aligners push. They don't really pull teeth. And so what is the active surface area that the aligner would really push on to help that tooth those two teeth in particular, to extrude and rotate at the same time, the answer is really, it's very limited. So the attachment of choice for me is this long, pardon me, horizontal type attachment that's beveled completely into the tooth at the gingival, and you need to request that. The attachment does need to be beveled completely into the gingival, otherwise you may sometimes get a horizontal attachment that's beveled, but then there's a ledge on it. It doesn't completely bevel into the tooth. And this is another view just showing, again, we're proclining before the IPR is performed. But for this particular patient, all the intrusion happened during proclination. And this is his finished result here. So we can see that we did not worsen the periodontal condition at all and that the lower curvacity was leveled very nicely. We got predictable root movement, and we were able to improve the smile line with the extrusion of the upper left one and two as well. This patient had no refinement. This was his only set of trays. Again, we can see the leveling of the curvacity in the pannier form, the very nice root parallelism of the tooth upper right two, and he obviously had plenty of room for his implant to be placed. Before and after step, we actually uprighted the incisors a little bit, but we got the bite opening that we wanted because, again, we did this during proclamation. And here is before and after picks for comparison. And this was his uh, bite fully restored. So we just discussed root movement. Uh, we discussed opening the bite during proclamation. And we also discussed briefly the uh, attachment for rotation and extrusion, the horizontal attachment. So let's dive in a little bit deeper. 
this is a case that presented to me, and he had a very apparent two-size discrepancy. As we can see, he has significant lower crowding, and even if you pay attention to the upper incisors here on him, you can see that the centrals are of different heights and width, so there is a very blatant two-size discrepancy apparent. His class one malocclusion uh, does have an anterior open bite tendency as well, and uh, poor oral hygiene at the beginning of treatment. The supplementary summary shows that he is a class three tendency high angle with upright upper and lower incisors. So our goal of treatment was to use IPR to reshape the anterior teeth so they would be the same width. He did not want to have restorative done, so I had to do all of this by hand for him and then to obviously establish ideal overbite and overjet using the upper right one as the key tooth in terms of the gingival margin and trying to extrude the remaining teeth to my preferences to give him a proper smile line. We did pull one lower incisor on him to address his crowding given the amount of recession here at present. I did not feel like we could fit everything into the arch just with IPR and we're gonna show the mechanics of closing that space. So here we go, there's uh, three things really I'd like to point out on this slide. For one, if we notice, let's focus on the extraction side first. We can see that the teeth gable into the extraction side first before the crowns then upright over the roots. And this is different from a diastema, unless you have a very significant diastema. Generally with a diastema, you can see the spaces close and translate, but you just need to really have an attachment on the tooth. But for an extraction site, that distance is too great. You want to push the root into the extraction site first and then upright the crowns over the root for predictable space closure. Now, if we look at the upper arch, there's different movements going on here. For one, I want to bring up a term called relative extrusion. And what that's referring to is that when a crown comes lingual, and we discussed this in terms of uh, deep bite correction, when a crown comes lingual, it wants to extrude naturally. So as you can see, the lateral incisor here and even on the other side are relatively extruding. So this should be a fairly predictable movement clinically, but even still, I chose to have an attachment on that tooth for increased surface area. But let's look at upper left one. The upper left one is clearly coming labial throughout its whole rotation and extrusion. So that is really an absolute extrusive movement. And anytime you have that, just please make sure, again, you have that big extrusion-type attachment on there, and also make sure that there's nice interproximal space, using on distal, so you do not have any binding. So the question is, this is a significant amount of movement. Will it happen predictably with Invisalign? And the answer is yes. Uh, this gentleman came in, and he was a little distraught because of the way his teeth looked, but I was extremely ecstatic because obviously things were moving along very well. So at this point, I decided to do a mid-course correction for his, uh, so he could be socially acceptable, really, because that's, I wouldn't want to walk around like that. Um, so we got into this point, took new impressions on him, and then detailed him out. So he finished up very nicely. This is all done completely with just addressing his two-size discrepancy and also planning for his attachments properly, because again, if we look at that ClinCheck, a lot of those attachments were not present. I had to add them by myself, and that's very important to understand that. Here's his before and after pan showing nice root parallelism of the extraction site and space closure.
and before and after steps showing better incisal inclinations and anterior center contact post-treatment. And again, before and after photos. So let's talk about rotation some more in those extrusive type attachments. We treat a lot of TMD patients in our practice, and I really found that they transition into aligners very nicely because if their splint helps them, we usually give them a mandibular type of splint if they have any internal joint derangement. And if the splint helps them, it's indicative of detailing of their bite. And it's been a much easier transition for a patient in a splint to go into Invisalign than for a patient in a splint to go into braces. It's just a much smoother transition. They still have a removable appliance in their mouth. It's still clear. And usually a lot of these TM TMD patients are adults. So for this particular patient, uh, she presented with uh, pain in the left TMJ, headaches twice a week, clenching and facial pain, neck and shoulder pain, and a history of locking as well. Uh, obviously, she has uh, some interferences here in terms of her occlusion. She really did not know where to bite down, and she was miserable when she came to the practice. She was not a happy person. In doing our diagnosis, obviously I'm presenting the case because we were able to help her with the splint. We noticed that she had a lower two-size discrepancy of 3.1 millimeters, so significant mandibular excess. Her step shows that she has flared upper uh, and upright lower incisors in um, a high mandibular plane angle. We put her through the mandibular pivot splint, and she was also seeing a chiropractor at the same time, and she did become symptom-free. So our goal for her was to then significantly expand her upper arch to detail her occlusion and to coordinate her arch forms and to perform lower IPR to not allow her incisors to go any more labially. This is her bite post-splint therapy, so we don't use uh, a positioning splint. The splint doesn't push the patient forward, right, left, forward, or back. It's simply they really establish uh, more or less a neuromuscular position. They posture to where they're symptom-free. And this was this particular patient's symptom-free position. But now, obviously, I have to make her teeth fit in this position. So we take our impressions and we take our photos at this point and then submit this to Invisalign. So the main goal of this patient, again, is to demonstrate, for one, the attachments on the central incisors. There were no attachments on those centrals when this case came back from Invisalign. So again, there's significant rotation happening here. So I put my rotation of choice for myself, which is, again, the horizontal attachment that's beveled towards the gingival, because that surface here, since it's beveled here, is constantly interacting with the plastic to keep that tooth in the aligner. Otherwise, there could be an intrusive force of that as that tooth is trying to spin, pushing the tooth up. And I know we've all seen that clinically. So we have to have an attachment on these teeth. You can see the significant amount of IPR occurring, again, to constrict the lower arch to help it to coordinate within the upper, but also to give her some more overage anteriorly so her posterior teeth can touch. And this is her at refinement, so she's progressing along very nicely. And at this point, she still, however, has tight anterior center contacts. So we take her into refinement and reiterate some of the uh, lessons we've learned already today. We want to, again, over-treat her overjet anteriorly. And now I've incorporated for her some light class 3 elastics 
to help make sure that happens. And that's her finished, uh, completely done at the end of her refinement. Her pan afterwards. And her cephalometric x-ray showing that we were able to control again her incisor inclinations and upright them and give her a nice functional occlusion. And again, before and after. So let's focus on rotation attachments some more here. This gentleman came in, and we're going to use this case as really an example for a particular point. Uh, he obviously had significant lower crowding, uh, some moderate upper crowding, and was interested in detailing his bite and eliminating uh, the crowding that was present. So the first clean check that came back from Invisalign is right here. And there's one thing I want to point out here, and that is the root here. If we see the root on this cuspid, I think we all could agree that it has a significant distal angulation to it. So the question is, what type of attachment, though, will be triggered by the software to correct this issue? Because this cuspid also has a significant rotation to it. It's rotated distal in. So when we progress through, we can see that the software triggered a rotation attachment. However, the active surface of this optimized attachment will have to start pushing from in front of the center of resistance for this tooth, and that's really not an ideal scenario. Ideally, you'd want to be behind the center of resistance for that tooth. And in addition, it's not really doing anything to address the axial inclination. That rotation attachment is not going to upright that root for us. So what can we expect to see clinically? This tooth needs both mesial rotation and mesial root tip. And furthermore, just so we know why that attachment was triggered, the G4 second-order attachments to correct axial inclination will not be applied because the software will actually take precedence to correct the rotation first. So that's why we're not seeing those two attachments, the G4 attachments for root movement, and we're seeing the rotation attachment instead. So clinically, I ran into an issue here, and I was obviously trying to help seat the tooth into the aligner but that was really uh, an act of futility. What I needed to do was to put the patient into refinement. So that's what we're seeing here. I'm rebooting the case. And now I have this long vertical type attachment, which consequently will definitely help me with rotation, but now I'm also addressing the root movement as well. Here's a similar situation. I know that uh, I have a lot of questions about this in terms of lateral rotations. There's an optimized attachment for lateral rotations, but this is really triggered when you have rotation and extrusion or rotation and lingual tipping. So if you just have rotation, this is not going to be triggered. So if we look at the patient for above, when her clincheck first came back to me, there was no attachment, believe it or not, on this lateral. And obviously I know that clinically that's not going to happen. So I had to add a long vertical attachment for her because I also noted for myself that there was some root movement occurring. So again, as a doctor, we really need to look carefully at what's happening. We can't just trust that the software is going to trigger everything for us. John Morton at Align has done amazing things to really push this appliance forward and make it what it is today. It's, it's a fantastic appliance. It works for almost all of our malocclusions that we need to treat orthodontically. But we as a doctor really have to understand where the appliance is currently at. They're constantly innovating. 
but there's still some things that we need to doctor ourselves and address. Interestingly enough, I came across an article from a friend of mine, Jonathan Nikosisis, who is a great practitioner and really puts a lot of thought into the biomechanics of how teeth move. I'm not going to get too much into this in terms of uh, just in the interest of time, but this article is available to you. It's called Tripping the Plastic Fantastic. It's in the most recent um, version of orthodontic products in November, and it goes through his preference for a lateral attachment when there is movement uh, noted, and I thought it was very interesting, and I may I, I do want to start to try doing this for some of my patients and see what the clinical outcome is of it and make a lot of sense. And this, again, for further review later, you can see what he requests uh, from Invisalign when setting up an attachment. So let's talk about some more movements. We've, we've touched on intrusion, torque, rotation, root movement. I'd also like to talk about intrusion and expansion. So this is a patient that came to our office again with TMD. She's pointing to where she's in pain. And uh, when we look at her, you can see she was previously treated orthodontically. She had upper body extractions previously. And she's lost torque anteriorly. And you can see that clearly she has opening over posterior occlusion and a steep lower curve of speed. So it really is no surprise that she's having uh, any TMD issues because her mandible is being retruded. So when we look further at her staff, she is a high angle class two, has upright upper and lower incisors. And so we put her into our pivot splint. We use a mandibular type pivot splint for these patients that they wear 24 seven, including eating. In addition to, again, she did see a chiropractor for some patients, see a physical therapist. It just depends on what they present with. She became symptom free. And again, we wanted to treat her to her asymptomatic mandibular position, which I'll show you here in a moment. But regardless, we know from our initial presentation, she has quite a steep curve of speed. So we were wondering from the beginning, how are we going to level that curve of speed if we were to help her? And she has an apparent two-size discrepancy, obviously, from the upper by extractions. We, have, we could not address that completely with Invisalign unless we did extractions, which I wouldn't recommend doing mandibular extractions with Invisalign uh, yet. Uh, but we were going to basically do that with, her, uh, with IPR. So this is her on the upper pre-splint and on the lower is post-splint. And again, we can see she's assuming a more anterior posture to the point of where really she's class one in the cuspid. So now the question is, well, how do we treat this? And the initial, uh, the initial objective for her was to have orthodontic surgery and she did not want anything to do with it. So that kind of tied our hands behind her backs because putting braces on a patient such as her would maybe open her up more and rotate her mandible further down and back. She clearly has an open by tendency. So we decided to use Invisalign and we we're very happy that we did. And going through a clean check though, the question was, how do we level this curve of speed in order to have her teeth to interdigitate posteriorly and maintain this class one position without also worsening her periodontal condition because she is having zipping of the gingiva anteriorly and as we all know, when you level a curve of speed, incisors want to go more labially. So this was her ClinCheck setup. And as we're moving through this, it's really, there's a lot of significant movement happening here. We really have to ask ourselves what's happening. So for one, on the upper, we are getting some expansion and also anterior lingual root torque to help to coordinate the eventual arch forms. On the lower arch, we're getting intrusion 
of the lower second molar to help level the curve of speed and also some anterior intrusion as well. But what we've done here is that we're pitting the six, five, and four against the sevens. We're using those as anchors essentially to just allow that tooth to intrude only. Now, would you clinically also maybe expect to get some extrusion of that six, five, four segment? I would think that's a reasonable assumption. But again, the ClinCheck is not going to show you that. We have to assume what's going to happen clinically. So as we progress forward here, this is her at the end of her set of aligners. And I was thrilled. Uh, she is class one cusped. Clearly, that goal was achieved. Uh, she has a really stable occlusion from this point forward. But why is there still opening back here? Uh, did movements not express properly? Did something unanticipated happen? And this is an important point here to realize, and this is just, again, showing this is her pre-splint and this is her post-invisalign here, and we can see how much lower intrusion happened on the second molar there. We truly got a lot of intrusion. That's really remarkable in my opinion. So why is the opening still remaining? This is an important view to look at for all of your patients that have significant expansion, as we're seeing here. We can notice that the initial inclination of her molars is not upright over basable and it's not lingual. It's that they're actually tilted a little bit buckle. So if I'm expanding this patient, do I really think that that tooth is going to translate the way that the clinic is showing here? And the answer is no. So we're seeing from her photos that we do have indeed dipping down of the palatal cusp here. And as we push a tooth more buckly with intrusion, you're also going to expect it to intrude. It's almost like proclining an incisor labially. You're going to expect that incisal edge to go down. So when you're expanding a molar, you're going to expect this to tip out and up. So we're getting intrusion and dipping down on the palatal cusp here. So how do we address this? We section the aligner distal to the three and then ran up and down elastics. The lower aligner is intact to help settle her buccal occlusion. And this was her finish. She's symptom free, has a stable occlusion. And here's the pan demonstrating again the leveling of the curve of speed, especially in the more posterior segment. Before and after Seth showing again control of IMPA and control of her vertical as well. And that's pre splint at the top, post splint in the middle, and post treatment at the bottom. And those are her one-year retention records showing the stability of her bite. She was in Vivera retainers, which are fantastic retainers for Invisalign patients, obviously, uh, and that helped her to even settle her occlusion down even more. So what happens now knowing that, that that's a sequelae, that you can have tipping during expansion? How do you address that clinically? Because you're going to end up with, again, a lot of bites being open. That patient did not begin with a crossbite and that was a consequence of the expansion. So let's say you have a patient that is beginning a crossbite, what can you do for them? I, I personally would not try to attempt doing Invisalign on this patient to correct their crossbite. I, I personally cannot get an outcome that I would be pleased with. So this patient in particular had to go through SARPI. He went through a surgical assisted and rapid palo expansion he wanted nothing but Invisalign, but this was our compromise. We said in order to really do this, we'll have to put you through, <clears throat> excuse me, a procedure first 
in order to correct your transverse, and then we can put you into the aligners. As you can see here, <clears throat> excuse me, he's in the public eye. He was speaking a lot, so he did not want to have a large diastema between his teeth. So we gave him a, a supernumerary tooth to live with. He was pleased with that. That was socially acceptable for him. Uh, and as we go through here, after the SARPI, we make him an Essex with a reinforced lingual wire to maintain the expansion until we got him into his aligners. And this is his ClinCheck showing closure of the diastema as a result of the surgery. But now please notice, regarding the transverse, all I need to do is just settle the occlusion. I'm not tipping teeth labially. I'm a, I can bring the bite together very nicely by just uprighting now the teeth over their new basal bone position. And this is his progress currently. Uh, he should hopefully be done. I hope to show this case in about eight months, but he's progressing beautifully. What are some alternatives? Not every patient wants surgery, obviously. We recommend a lot of Schwartz-type appliances, full coverage occlusal. This is a three-way sagittal Schwartz, which is what this patient here got uh, in terms of correcting his transverse uh, anterior crossbite and posterior crossbites before treatment. And this is, as you can notice here from this photo to here, that's all with the removable appliance. You can see what nice arch form correction you can get before Invisalign to then make Dr. your treatment. Yes, ma'am. Oh, it just advanced. Uh, it looks like uh, we thought that there might be an issue with the uh, presentation, but it did just advance. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. No, no problem. All right, so again, <clears throat> excuse me, just looking at the uh, maxillary occlusal photo here, if we had missed that slide previously, this is being done with just a Schwartz appliance correct the uh, transverse before Invisalign treatment. So again, I would not feel comfortable treating this situation with only Invisalign unless I was planning on finishing the patient in a crossbite, which for some patients is completely acceptable. So that conversation needs to be had up front. And this is this patient's progress in Invisalign. You can see that we're holding him very nicely and that he still does have some tight anterior center contacts but we're in the middle of treatment, I'm very confident we're going to finish him with a socket occlusion posteriorly. So let's summarize some of the principles presented to this point. For one, we've talked about two-size discrepancy quite a bit, and to uh, properly plan your IPR and spacing to detail your patient's occlusion, including taking into consideration how are you going to open or close the bite. Certain movements, such as torque and anterior intrusion, will require over-engineering on the ClinCheck so that they happen more predictably for you clinically. And you also want to understand that not all movements uh, that should require attachments will be triggered due to the current software limitations, meaning that you may have an extrusive movement, for example, on a central incisor, and you won't have that attachment triggered in the software. It's ultimately your responsibility to understand when that needs to go on there. And lastly, you want to be aware that some movements, like we just talked about with expansion, will not express as shown in ClinCheck, meaning that it may show you're getting translation of that tooth when really you're getting tipping. And you should, occur, you should understand that there's a side effect that may happen because of that. Movements discussed, we discussed torque, again, to over-engineer that on your ClinCheck, anterior intrusion, where you want to over-engineer that, maybe anticipate a little bit more so you get it clinically, what you want. Root movement, make sure there's a long vertical attachment on those teeth 
extrusion. Best combined with retraction because, again, those movements will complement each other, but it will still happen clinically even if you are not retracting the tooth. You just have to really make sure there's a large type attachment on that tooth and no interproximal binding. Rotations, consider an attachment if not triggered by the software, and you may need to change the type of attachment if there's one on there if there's root movement occurring. It may not be an attachment that would help both situations to resolve. And lastly, again, expansion, beware of tipping versus translation. So moving forward here, I want to talk about two more malocclusions that we uh, deal with clinically. One is open bites, and then we're going to get into class twos. So open bite closure, just to summarize, we have a patient here, again, with a two-size discrepancy, uh, 1.2 millimeters of mandibular excess. And she was a previous TMD patient that we were able to resolve her symptoms. So again, the question was, how do we close her bite down? On her stuff, we can see that she has a nice uh, upper incisor inclination, but on the lower, the incisors are flared forward. So we're going to use that to our advantage to help close the bite down. One thing I want to point out, uh, resultant extrusion, as in the title, if you look up resultant on Google, the definition of that is occurring or produced as a result of a consequence of something, or if you look at the noun, it's a force, velocity, or other vector quantity as equivalent to the combined effect of two or more component vectors acting at the same point. So it's a result of two forces acting at the same point. So we have to, again, consider this in terms of what we just discussed for extrusion. When you have retraction with extrusion, you have two vectors acting on a tooth to then push that tooth with a net force to make that tooth go in the direction you want. You always want plastic to push for you. So again, whenever you're retracting a tooth and it's extruding at the same time, that will happen much more effectively if you're able to combine those two movements together. And there's a nice article on this again with Johnny Kavistis in Orthotown, uh, October 2010, if you want to read more into that. So for this patient, we are moving her incisors labially first, but that's only to establish access to the right proximal surface to strip. When those incisors are forward and then we go through and do the IPR, I then ask the technician to do as much of the extrusion during the retraction of that teeth and space closure. So we're using that to our advantage. I want as much of that extrusion to occur during the space closure from the IPR. Please also notice again, upper left one and two, very large horizontal type attachments to help with the rotation and extrusion of those teeth. This patient had one set of aligners, and that was her finish at the end of that set. She was symptom-free and had a very functional occlusion. And any type of patient like this, especially with open bites, you want to make sure to retain them with uh, Vivera-type retainers. That is her pan after treatment and her before and after staph showing the nice control of IMPA and closure of her open bite. So where do we go at this point? Obviously, there's uh, some time limitations here. I want to discuss one more type of malocclusion with you, the one we probably see most often, which is class two malocclusions. 80% of your class twos that present to you will have mesial in rotation of their molars. 
And by correcting this rotation, we're not only going to get class one correction of the molar as it rotates distally, but we're also going to gain space medial to the molar for subsequent correction of the, of the dentition anterior to that. Ricketts proposed a good visualization of this to see if your molar indeed is rotated. So if you draw a line through the distal buccal cusp and mesial lingual cusp, that should really intersect the cuspid on the opposite side. This is a treated patient with Invisalign, again showing this patient did have a class two malocclusion. That's what distal molar rotation will look like. That's what it's going to do for you on your ClinCheck. You're going to get expansion of that molar. You're going to see both molars rotating distally. And as a result of that, you should see the dentition anteriorly also moving distal for you as well. But the question is, does that happen on its own? And the answer is no. You also obviously would need to have class two elastics to control the anchorage from that. What does this look like clinically? So I want to show you a case here. And as we can see, for this patient, she's not getting any distalization of her molar for class two correction. This is purely rotation around the palatal cusp. This is just correcting molar rotation. But by doing this, again, we're creating space and allowing the remaining buccal occlusion to classify into class one. This whole time, she's wearing a class two elastic help guide that anchorage distally. That's the first step. So let's say you have a patient that you've corrected the molar rotation on, but they're still class two. At that point then, we need to request segmental distalization. And segmental distalization is a term which Invisalign is familiar with. If you request it, what happens is that the upper second molar, uh, the aligner will start squeezing medially to that and push it distally. Once that second molar is pushed distally, two-thirds of the way, the upper first molar will start, start moving back, and then so on. Once the canines are at class one, then the upper two to two will be retracted. You want to make sure to ask to retract them with lingual root torque if your incisors are upright to begin with, or you can choose that in retrocline if they're too procline to begin with. Again, anchorage considerations, all of these patients need to have class two elastics because that there's a reciprocal force of that aligner pushing distally. It's also pushing those teeth anterior to that mesially. So we have to control that anchorage. And just a clinical consideration, uh, you can take your impressions first if you're doing segmental distalization and then request to have the patient have their third molars removed. The presence of that inflammation will help to make your movements more predictable. What about attachment setups? Uh, you definitely, in my estimate, would want to have an attachment on the second molar. I've had patients where I've done segmental distalization on where it occurs very predictably without putting attachment on the second molar, but if we think through it logically, that's the most important tooth in terms of its movement. If that doesn't move back all the way, the teeth anterior to that may not track properly. So again, you want to make sure to have an attachment on the second molar at least, and then you can have for example, one on the um, first or second premolar and then one on the cuspid if you wish, but not every tooth needs an attachment. It would be impossible for the uh, patient to get their aligner out. The use of segmental distalization in a compliant patient is extremely powerful. Uh, for example, this is a 16-year-old patient that is a full step class two, and you can see that he has pushed his molar back to class three. So I had to 
really have him back off his elastics, obviously, and I was going to burn this anchorage clinically to close this space here to get him back into class one again. So again, as a summary, priority list for class two correction, ask for your mesial out rotation of upper sixes and sevens first. This is a very predictable movement with Invisalign, and attachments are not necessary to rotate those molars. There's a lot of surface area for the plastic to grab on that tooth. I basically asked the technician to rotate the teeth until the buccal surfaces are parallel with each other on the right or left. I think that provides a good visual for the technician to understand what I'm asking. Once that's achieved, if I'm still class two, then we're asking, of course, for segmental distalization. And then if I get that correction, we're class one molar uh, at, at the sixes and sevens, but we're still class two anteriorly, that's telling you then you have a two-size discrepancy so we need to evaluate that, understand that number, and treat accordingly. Last case here, uh, summarizing the class two points. This is a patient that came in with a class two Div one malocclusion with a narrow maxilla and an open bite tendency. She had moderate overbite and overjet with moderate crowding of upper and lower incisors, and her lower midline was off to the right slightly by 1.5 millimeters. On her CEPH, we can appreciate that she indeed has significantly flared lower incisors, so we needed to control that in terms of setting up the case. So our goals for her were class two correction with molar rotation, primarily to classify the molars and also open up space medially for subsequent distalization of the remaining segment, and the use of IPR again to address lower mandibular flaring and tooth mass excess to facilitate the class two correction. And this is her ClinCheck. And I'm showing this because really, uh, this case in particular, I did not have an attachment on that upper second molar. And when I show this case at SLU, that's the first thing that the residents always noticed or always shocked as to why there was not an attachment on that upper second molar. And the reason was I missed it. I, I'm a human being and I made a mistake and I didn't put it on there. But the fact of the matter is, again, that molar has a lot of surface area and I had a very compliant patient in hand. Generally, would I always put an attachment on that tooth? The answer is yes. As you can see, we're demonstrating where the class two elastics are for this patient. She's wearing them for the duration from the upper uh, right cuspid to the lower right second molar. The first thing we're seeing here is that the molars are rotating. So you're seeing that mesial out rotation. And then once that rotation has completed, you're then seeing that there is segmental distalization happening as well with expansion. As we get through here, one other side note here to talk about, if we're expanding a patient, we discussed the possibility of a tooth intruding and tipping. So what about when you're moving a tooth distally? Could that happen as well? And for class two patients where we're getting a lot of segmental distalization, the answer is yes, but it really depends on the axial inclination of that tooth to begin with. Most class two patients have a mesial inclination to their teeth. Uh, and this is showing a tooth that's upright. But again, most class two patients have a mesial inclination to their teeth. So when you upright them, they're not going to tip up and intrude. But let's take a look at this first molar. That actually looks like it has a little bit of a distal inclination to it. So could we expect some tipping? The answer is yes. Was this 
uh, a lack of the software predicting something, not really. That's really my fault as a clinician. I should know that that can happen. But long story short, it's not a big deal. What we do for that patient is then clinically add buttons, run some up and down elastics for them, and then settle their occlusion into class one. So she had a very nice predictable result, was a very compliant patient. One thing I also want to point out, we have to manage the anchorage in class two patients from the beginning because these, the correction's happening from the beginning. In braces, you usually want to wait until you get the heavier arch wires just running your mechanics, but that's really not the case with Invisalign. We have to control this from the beginning of the treatment. And I have not had one patient in Invisalign have their incisors flare as a result of treatment. There is such great incisor control in terms of the IMPA and the vertical. It's really a huge benefit of the appliance. So uh, one week from today, just wanted to give everyone a reminder, this entire program will be archived on the education tab um, in the Invisalign doctor site. And I just wanted to thank Dr. Moshiri again for his great presentation and all of his clinical knowledge. And for all of you to take time out of your Friday to join us this morning and this afternoon. And we look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert webinar. Thanks very much and have a great weekend.